Well, it is a joy to be back with you tonight in our study of 1 John. That's where we've been over the last weeks, and uh, we're headed back there again tonight. So if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. These last few weeks, uh, we've been in a study that is entitled Real Fellowship, as you can see on the screen. We've been looking at what it means to have fellowship, real fellowship, with God, and not only with Him, but with each other in the church. And that's what these opening chapters and really all of 1 John is about, fellowship with God, real fellowship, having a real relationship with God, having deep assurance that we've passed from death to life. John knows that when the church has assurance and confidence in Christ, he knows that you and I will live maximally productive lives, fruitful for His name and for His glory. And John has this burden, and you remember where the burden came from, right? Just by way of review. These Christians that John was writing to, they were very dear to him. And they were in the middle of a church crisis. Some of the leaders of this church had recently left. They'd abandoned the church. And they left over a controversy about the person and the work of Christ. We're not really sure what the specifics were that they were teaching. We know a bit about it. But we do know that whatever it was, it led to sinful living. They claimed some higher status, some deeper relationship with God, some special anointing, if you will, from God. And, it, and all of that led to them minimizing their sin. They ignored their sin. They said it didn't matter anymore how they lived. And they were probably saying that, that everyone else, like those who, who stayed faithful to the Apostle John, everybody else was on the wrong track. They were the only ones on the right track. And so they were calling folks to follow them. And so the faithful, John was writing to, they were unsettled. So that's why John wrote to them. He wrote to settle them. He wants them to know that the door to fellowship with God is wide open through what Christ has done. Through the real Christ. The Christ that John and the other apostles proclaimed. Not the pseudo-Christ, or in John's language, the anti-Christ of the false teachers. Believing in the wrong Christ means condemnation. But believing in the true Jesus means eternal life. It means real fellowship with God and others. And it means moving from darkness to light, from death to life. And John wants the church to know that this has happened in them and for them. He wants the church to be free from doubt so that they can live lives full of faith, and as we're going to see tonight, lives full of love. So in a word, John wants the church to have assurance. He wants the church to have deep confidence that they belong to Christ. The same is true for you and I today. If John were here, he would want you to participate in that assurance. So in these opening chapters, John wants to assure us that we have real fellowship with God. And he does that in two ways. Again, just kind of by way of review into these first first few chapters. Do you remember how he does this? Well, first... What happens? He gives us what? A message to embrace, right? You could read your notes. That's good. He tells us a message. He tells us that God is light in verse 5. 
And that means that all truth is found in God, the God that, that John proclaims and the Christ that he sent. In sending Christ, in sending the true light, Christ illumined the path to God. He turned the lights back on for how to get to God. Dark in humanity, we had no idea how to get back to Him. But Christ, as God's light, turned the lights on to illumine the path back to God. And not only did He illumine the path, He is the path, right? He lived and died for us and was raised from death, securing eternal life for all who would trust Him, for all who believe in Him. That's the message. And John knows that once we really get this, once we've understood the implications and embraced the message, the message of God's love for us, once we step out into the light, certain fruit is going to happen. Certain evidences result. If we pass from death to life or from darkness to light, there will be signs of it. There will be evidence of it, even if it's small. So John, in the rest of these paragraphs in this opening of the letter, gives us some evidences to consider. He gives us some domains to look at, to carefully think about, to know whether or not we have real fellowship with God. And really, if, even if we don't, it's to have real fellowship with God. So it's not to just leave you in perpetual fear and doubt. It's so that you can have a secure relationship with God and know that you have one. So, he wants us to look at a couple of these domains. We've looked at them over the last few weeks. How we live. So the first area he wants us to observe is how we live our lives, or in his words, how we walk. Do we walk in the light, or do we walk in darkness? Are our lives, in other words, governed by his light, the truth, or are our lives governed by darkness, meaning lies, deceptions, and sin? If we really know the God who is light, our lives will progressively be governed by His truth. You can't come to this God, embrace this God, and stay in the shadows. So he says, first, is we have to look at how we live. He doesn't point us to some experience we had or anything like that. He says, look at the, the pattern of your life. Next, he looks at, in a kind of backdoor encouraging way, how we handle sin. John knows that true believers sin. It's not that they don't sin. They're not sinless. But how we handle sin, John says, reveals whether or not we know this God of light. Do we confess it or do we cover it up? And that's because stepping out into the light, that means exposure too, doesn't it? When you step into light and you're a sinner, what happens? Sins are exposed, right? Peter felt it, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Isaiah felt it, Isaiah 6. Our sin is exposed when we come to the God who is light. And if we really know the Lord, if we really have fellowship with Him, we will not deny it. We won't hide it, we won't blame it on other people, we won't minimize it. Instead, John would say, true believers take full responsibility for sin. They freely confess it to God, and they experience His free mercy in return. And God's cleansing mercy doesn't just stop there. It leads to real change. Progressive? Yes. Doesn't happen all at once. But it is real. And this change shows up then in how we treat His commands. That's where John goes next. Do we obey? Is the pattern of our life obedience to Him's commands? Do we have a sensitivity to it? Or is it 
flagrant disobedience is the pattern of our life. Rebellion. For a true believer, God's commands become our delight. Doesn't mean they're easy. But something within us, our disposition toward God's commands has has changed now that we've come to know God. We used to hate the Lord. We distrusted Him, even if we never fully expressed that. That was the the nature of our hearts. We did not like the light. But something inside of us changed. We now trust the Lord. We heard His voice, yielded to it. And that means when we trust the Lord, we trust His assessments of things. We want to hear what's good. We, We want to hear what we should pursue because we know we don't know what we should pursue. We need to know what we need to forsake because we don't know it. We tried to chart our lives out and it ended in devastation. But now, because we trust Him, we trust that He knows what's best and we know that His commands spell out the truly good life. We're not suspect of the Lord anymore. We know that He knows what's best. We know that this is the good life that He holds out for us. So we pursue His commands, even even if it's imperfect, we pursue them now. We seek to keep his commands, but unbelievers do not. But tonight, in the next passage, we're going to see that that John has something specific in mind when he's talking about these commands. Even last week, you may have noticed that up to this point, John stayed pretty vague when he's talking about commands. He kept talking about them in the plural, commands, plural, without a lot of specificity in his language. He never quite detailed out what the specific commands are that believers keep. He basically just said, you know, true believers seek to keep his commands. Unbelievers don't don't do that. But tonight, what we're going to see is that John does have something specific in mind when he thinks of Christ's commands. In our passage tonight, John moves from talking about the commands plural to the command singular. So from a plural to singular, to the command, you might say the culminating command that sums up all the other commands. Any guesses that might be? The command to love, right. The command to love. And this theme of love is the final evidence that John gives in this passage. It's the final domain we should consider, and it's how we treat his followers. How we treat the church. Do we love or do we hate the church? How we treat his followers. John wants us to consider this. Do we love them or do we hate them? And we desperately need this. We need this passage. We need what John's going to teach us tonight. Why? Well, for starters, there is widespread confusion about what love is in the culture we live in. Can we agree on that? widespread confusion. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but it is worth thinking through. All right? So, there's like so many things we could talk about with this, but let's just keep it to some of the most, maybe a couple of the most flagrant. Love is often redefined in our culture from biblical love to to a, a, a different definition, and it's redefined, say, initially as the new tolerance. Call it the new tolerance. What I mean by that, I'm calling it the new tolerance because I don't want to give in to the culture's definition of tolerance either because they've redefined that. 
to tolerate something used to mean I accept it even though, or I, I will tolerate you even though I disagree with you, and I can be free in my disagreements with you, and I will tolerate you. Like, we can exist together. I won't kill you, even though we disagree. Now, tolerance means acceptance. I have to accept what you say as true, even if it's a relativity. So that definition's changed, too. But love is often redefined as the new tolerance. So here's what I mean. To be loving means that you accept others as they are, as they define themselves, and you don't try to change them, and you certainly don't confront them. Any disagreement becomes hate or hate speech. To love, then, means that you must accept moral relativity. You must accept, if you're going to love, according to this paradigm, that there are no absolutes. There is no absolute truth. And we feel this, right? When we graciously confront, we're often accused of being what? Unloving, harsh. Or we might even wonder if we're being unloving ourselves, right? Like, we feel it. Like, wow, this seems harsh. This seems unloving. Am I really loving somebody if I'm bringing the truth to them? And that's because we've we fallen prey to redefining love as the new tolerant. That's not biblical love. In fact, biblical love will lay yourself down to get the truth to someone else. So that's one way that the culture redefines love and that it's seeping into the church. Another way is love is redefined as, as pure and often uncompelled emotion. Pure and uncompelled emotion, like it's just, it's just happening to you, and you can't control it. I read an article in Psychology Today, and this is the, the baseline premise. You can't control it. It just comes, and you're supposed to follow your heart, be true to yourself. That's kind of the language that surrounds this. How often that we've heard people rationalize divorce by saying, I just don't love them anymore. Or... I realized I, I actually never loved them. So what are they saying? They're saying love's outside of me. I can't control that. I have no control over how I, love, how I feel, because love's an emotion. And I don't have that emotion toward them anymore, so therefore I don't love them. I can't love them. It's, not, it's outside of my control. I'm not culpable for this. How many times have we heard people rationalize an affair by saying, what do you expect me to do? I can't not love this person. It's not my husband or not my wife. Just, it's just happening to me. See, that's just one example among thousands that we, could, that we could tease out here about how this redefinition plays out. Love is pure and uncontrolled emotion, and we can't then be held responsible for who we love, heterosexual, homosexual, or who we have feelings for, who we, who, who we don't love. So like I said, we shouldn't be surprised by this. John's going to go on in this passage to describe the unbelieving culture as blind and essentially groping in the dark. What is sad, though, is how much rampant disregard there is in the church for how we treat each other. Often, professing Christians are so easily offended right here in the church, so quick to criticize so incredibly impatient with one another. Even though we ourselves are sinners, when people sin against us in the church, we're surprised. We think something's like way wrong. 
Something like, it's just out of control happening here. I'm being sinned against in the church. It's not supposed to happen. So then, people get hurt in the church. Instead of responding to that biblically, instead of confronting and working out the issues and forgiveness, they quietly leave. Or sometimes not so quietly, right? Then they use that bad experience to justify why they don't go to church anymore. Or why they're minimally involved in close relationships. Or why they won't commit to a church in membership. But if we boil it down, what is this? John would say it's a lack of love. A lack of biblical love. It shows that we have redefined love, much like the culture has, or else that we're not actually committed to loving like Christ. But John's going to show us tonight that for a true believer, how we treat others in the church right here at Timberlake, right here in Boundless, is not a sideline issue. It's one of the most important things about us. Arguably, it is the most important thing about us. Love as defined by Christ is the preeminent quality of all who follow the real Christ. We definitely don't love perfectly. We wish we would love more deeply and more consistently, and we'll talk about that. But Christians do love. So look with me in our passage tonight. 1 John 2, we'll start in verse 7. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, or on the other hand, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother and is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, passage on the urgency of love. And this is the first time that love, the theme of love, is actually mentioned in this letter in 1 John. But it's definitely not the last time he's going to mention love in 1 John, if anybody's read it. John likes to revisit themes. And when he does that, he adds more to the theme. So he kind of sort of like surround sounds. So you hear one speaker, then you hear another speaker, and then they kind of all come together there toward the end. So you can think of tonight as like an appetizer on the theme of love, and uh, other courses are going to come later. We're going to eat more of it later. Um, but tonight is just sort of our appetizer. John's setting us up to understand love. And in, in our passage tonight, we can make at least four observations about love that John intends uh, for us to get. And th- those observations are going to either reassure us or they will expose us so that we will repent and truly come to Christ. That's John's goal. His goal is the same for both sets. He wants us to have true, joyful fellowship with God, and he does not want us to be deceived. His heart is a heart of joy. It's a heart of love toward every single one of us tonight. 
no matter where you're at. So let's look at this. Four observations about love. And the first is that the command to love is predicated on God first loving us. I know that's a lot to write, so I'll give you a second. The command to love is predicated on God first loving us. That's our first observation. Now, I'm drawing this out from how John addresses the church in the opening of this verse. What does he call us? Beginning of verse 7. Beloved. If you have more of a literal translation, some of your translations will say, dear friends. But it's literally beloved. It means loved ones. And in this context, we are beloved because we are loved by God. That's the idea. So, right out of the gate, John is very intentional with his description as he launches into a paragraph about love, about our love. He reminds us here that we are fundamentally loved by God because he knows that our love for other people is motivated by God's love for us. Later in the letter, John's going to tell us that we love others, in chapter 4, verse 19, we love others because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. This means that our experience of the radical love of God in Christ, the completely free and undeserved love of God, that love when we were his enemies and only deserved his wrath, this experience of his love is what compels us to bend that love out toward other people. Even when, key in, they do not deserve it. Maybe we could say, especially when they don't deserve it. Because we certainly did not when he loved us. God's commitment to us, his devotion toward us, is the fuel for our deep commitment to each other, even when it's hard. John wants us to know that that when God sets his free love upon someone, He does not intend His love to terminate there. When God sets His love on someone, when they become beloved by God, His intention is not for it to terminate there. That's not His plan. His plan is to change us into loving people and to use us as a channel for His love to others. Remember back to last week, we talked about this. We said that God's love, or we didn't say this, John said this, God's love is perfected in us, or it's completed, it's a better way of rendering that, it's completed in us when we obey, when we love other people. He says that back in verse 5 of chapter 2, he'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 12. What this means is that God's end goal of his love for us is accomplished. His his termination point is not us. It goes beyond us. His end goal is accomplished when we bend that love out toward other people. Now, this is not complicated if you just think about it. Every winter, if you're around here, if you're a freshman, just hang on because it's coming. 
we usually get at least one ice storm. So we're not north enough to where we get these cool blizzards. We just get ice. And it freezes, and everybody gets in car wrecks, and power lines go down. Now, I just want you to imagine that if the power company comes out in one of those weeks where it's real nasty, and they spend all day, or maybe a couple days, like repairing a line. You've not had power. Been roughing it. They finally finish it up. Then you got your smartphone out. You've been tracking it, trying to figure out if you're going to need to go somewhere else to get a shower. Then you get the notification that the power line's completed. It's been repaired. But they never turn the power back on. And you're sitting there and you're like, what are you doing? Why, why, why are we here, right? Like, you fixed the power line, now restore the power. Why then did you fix it if you're not going to use the line to conduct electricity? Like, that's what it's for. Well, the same is true of the Lord when he redeems a human being. When he renovates someone, when he sets his love upon a soul, you can be sure of this. God will cause every person truly loved by him to become a conduit of his love. Because it reflects on his ability. a terrible power company that doesn't turn the power back on to a line they've repaired. So what this means then, if our lives are consumed by hate, if we really don't love other Christians, if we refuse to forgive and reconcile, that means then that we have not truly experienced the love of God. This means We don't necessarily need to try harder to love, at least not yet. That would be the wrong response to say, I'm not loving, i got to love. We need to take a step back and truly realize, here it is, the depth of our sinful condition and what we really deserve from God. We need to realize then the magnitude of His mercy towards sinners like us the depth of his love that transcends our human ability to grasp it, Paul would say. We need to truly receive that love by faith. Then, and only then, precisely because we are loved, beloved, then we should strive to live out that love and to become a conduit. We need repairing before we become the channel of electricity. We don't earn his love by loving others. That's the, that's the reverse. It doesn't happen that way. We love others because, it says, he first loved us. And that's our first observation, just drawn out of one of these words here, that our love for others is predicated upon God first loving us. Now you might be thinking, wow, Clay, this birth to love sounds a little intense, Right? Are you overemphasizing this a little bit? Maybe getting your emphasis wrong. Well, John himself knew that his opponents were accusing him of things like this, so he makes sure in the next clause that we realize that the command to love is not a recent emphasis. It's not something new that John's just made up because he's an apostle. 
and is calling believers now to do something that isn't in line with historic Christianity. And that's really our second observation. That the command to love is not a recent or novel emphasis. Look in verse 7, the rest of verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John's point is that he wants the church to remember that the command to love did not originate with him. It's not something new, it's not something novel, it's instead an old command. But what does he mean by old? Well, this emphasis on love, both love for God and love for others, is certainly found throughout the entire Bible, isn't it? We think of passages like the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, specifically 6.5, where Israel was commanded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We also think of passages like Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, you shall love, well, he says, you shall not hate your brother in 17, and then later in 18, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Part of the Mosaic Law. Even Jesus himself said that the entire law was summarized in this central command to love in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Now, I'm pointing that out because that's, that's a very true biblical theme. And it's tempting to think that that's what John means here when he talks about an old command. It's like, it's biblical, it's through the whole Bible. But I don't think that's what John means here. I think there's a slightly better explanation for what John means by the, when he says it's old. I think he means that this command to love comes from Christ's teaching, his own teaching, when Christ was here on earth, and now, which is decades later, when John's writing this, decades after Christ said this, it's still true. He means that to love other Christians has been an implication of the gospel message from the very beginning. That's what John goes on to say. He says it's an old commandment that you had, you, Christians, in the Ephesus area who weren't alive during the time of Jesus, you Christians had from the beginning. The beginning of what? From when they first heard the gospel, meaning it was part of Christ's own teaching. It came with the gospel proclamation, this command to love, this implication, I would say, to love as Christ had been loved. Now, there's something I've just assumed here in this passage, and maybe some of you inquisitive people are thinking about this. You're thinking, well, how do we know that the commandment is the command to love? Right? It doesn't actually say that right here in the text. And in fact, he goes on to specify here, and he says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. He doesn't even say it's, it's the love command. So how do we know that, that this command is the command to love? Well, it's helpful to know that anytime the Apostle John speaks about the command, singular, he's always talking about the command to love in all these other contexts. And his readers, this, these churches that knew John, were familiar with his teaching, familiar with the gospel of John, they would have been instant for them. They would have understood this, even if it's, even if it's less familiar to us. But this is going to become crystal clear even in, the, even in this letter itself. So if you look over in 1 John 3, 
chapter 3, verse 23, he explicitly says, and this, chapter 3, 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So you see that there in chapter 3, verse 23. You see it again in chapter 4, verse 21. We'll go back to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And here, here it is. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This commandment. I love your brother. And what John's doing in his letter is simply mimicking his Lord. All right? Simply mimicking the Lord. And he captures this, John himself captures this in his gospel. When Jesus spoke of his commandment in the singular, he's referring to his command to love like he loves. We see this throughout the gospel, but a good example is John 13.34. So you can write that down. John 13.34, where Jesus says this. He says, a new commandment, interesting, put that on the back burner, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So here we see the singular command given from Jesus as the command to love. Notice here that it's a new command. We'll talk about this in just a second, but this new command of Jesus is here described as an old command by John because he means old in the sense of it not being novel or a new development from John himself. He's saying this is in accordance with what Jesus taught. It's Jesus' own teaching. So, dragging you through all that data, what's the point? What's the point for us? You know, could have convinced me you. I know we're supposed to be loving, right? Well, the point in this text is that we're supposed to be assured by this. John wants us to know that our emphasis on love, our pursuit of love, our measuring even professing Christians by the standard of love is not off base. We are in line with what Jesus himself taught. So what that means then is evangelicalism may accuse us of being legalistic. But the real Jesus won't. The modern church may think that we're radical or we're overly zealous by calling Christians to actually covenant to one another in church membership. You may think we're extreme for going after people in church discipline who are unrepentant, forsaking the Lord, at great danger to, the, to themselves. But Jesus won't. According to Jesus and John, we are not off track. Authentic, historic, and Orthodox Christianity has always been very much concerned with how we love. So in that sense, it is an old command. So we better not jettison it. However, as I'm sure you've noticed, the text gets puzzling in the very next verse, doesn't it? In what appears to be a complete contradiction, John says the exact opposite of what he just said. He says, the ESV translates this at the same time, it's literally just, again, 
it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. So, <laughs> hang on, John. You just said it was not a new commandment. So which is it? Well, I think if John were here, he would be smiling at us right now because he wants us to ask that very question. Remember, John is old, he's very thoughtful, very wise, so he's not dumb in how he, in how he links these things together. He is inviting us to meditate. He wants us to think. He wants us to say, in what sense is this a new command? So here's how I think we could say it, and this is our third observation. Don't worry, I'm going to unpack this. The command to love is realized in the new covenant age. Now, if you're like, what does that mean? We'll talk about that. The command to love is realized in this new covenant age that we're in. He says, then, at the same time, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So, we've just seen the command is old in that it's not novel or a new emphasis. It's not something new coming down the pipeline from John. Yet it is simultaneously new. And I think John is now picking up on the newness language that Jesus used in John 13.34. You tracking? Jesus said it was new. So what did Jesus mean by new command? That's especially puzzling because the command to love is not new. The command to love is, is very old, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Like, what does that mean? Well, our first hint comes from the word new. John uses this word, you chase it down, to describe and to only describe realities that are associated with the new creation. So just give you some examples. It describes the new tomb that Jesus is buried in from which he will spring in resurrection. It describes the new name in Revelation 2 and 3 upon our resurrection. By the way, John, same John, wrote Revelation. Side note there. It describes the new song sung before the throne of God in Revelation 14. It describes the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. And finally, in the sort of massive summary statement at the very end of Revelation, God declares He is making all things new. Same word. So this is one of John's favorite words for the coming renewal, the coming restoration, the coming new creation, you could say. So what does it mean here, the new command? Well, I think he means the command which will be able to be fulfilled during this time of renewal. During this new covenant period is another way to put it. It's a new command, maybe we could say it simply like this, a new command that's suited for a new covenant. So just hang with me here. 
centuries before Christ, the prophets predicted a day when God would create a new covenant with Israel. You guys know these, right? Jeremiah predicted that God would write his commandments on their hearts. So, God making a new covenant. Part of that new covenant would be God would, on the inner man, would write the commands. Jeremiah 31. This means that in, his, in this renewal, in this renewed period, period of the new covenant, God would make his people obedient to his commands. They would become like him in expressing his love. In other words, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, said this new covenant period would be characterized by God's powerful spirit who would enable his people to obey. Ezekiel 36 says that God will put a new heart within them, his own spirit, causing them to walk in God's statutes. In other words, he would make Israel obedient to the law in this period. Isaiah described this new covenant period in terms of a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Now this was incredibly good news for Israel, who for the entirety of their existence before Christ had not been remotely obedient to the Lord. They were set aside. Covenant with, covenant with the, the corporate covenant of Israel, Sinai, be obedient. First thing that happens, worshiping a calf. You know, golden cow. And that was just the ominous sign for years to come. And, and every, every covenant son that God has chosen had his own fall. Remember we talked about that in Sunday school. Except for one. Now, there were a few high points over the centuries, but, but that was it. Those few little blips on the radar. There were a few semi-obedient kings, but they all ultimately failed. Even during this time, the prophets made the predictions, even, even when that was going, they were in exile. The nation was in exile because of their failure to be obedient when they were getting these promises of the new covenant. They needed a new king to represent them in obedience. They needed a new king to freely, by his obedience, receive the blessings of the covenant and dispense those blessings to them. Isaiah 55 talks about that. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. He dispensed the blessings, and not just to Israel, like Isaiah predicted, to Israel, but also even to a wider audience, to the Gentile nations. Again, just like the prophets predicted would happen. He inaugurated the new covenant and he brought us into it. The new creation has dawned, which means then that it's time for the fulfilling of the new command. Tracking? But, you might be thinking, we're not fully in the new creation yet, so how can we obey this new command? Well, I think that's precisely where John goes next. The new creation has begun with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And because of it, Jesus now enables us to progressively fulfill the command. Underline progressively. Progressively fulfill the command. Now, where are you getting this from, Clay? Well, notice in verse 8, John says something similar to what I just said. He's, it's a new commandment, and then... 
goes on, there's another clause in there that says, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And what does that mean? He's saying this new commandment is true or it's being realized. Maybe that's a better way to translate that. It's being realized in Christ and in us. In other words, Christ fulfilled this new command to love perfectly. He fully realized it in his life, death, and resurrection. He loved perfectly unto death. His death was the the ultimate expression of his love. He's going to go on to say that in 1 John. And upon his resurrection and entrance into new creation life, he transfers all who come to him from death to life inwardly. Right now. So then, right now, at this moment, if you belong to Christ, you are fundamentally part of the new creation. Not by anything you've done, but by his obedience, by what he's done. He's earned the blessings of the covenant. He's given them to us. We are new creatures, using language from Paul now, new creatures in Christ. And now, right now, this creation, this new creation is breaking in to this darkened age. Get this, through us. As we learn to love like Jesus. It's breaking in progressively through us as we learn to love like Jesus does. That's what John means when he says that it's true, not just in Him, that's in Christ, but it's also true or it's being realized in us. We were the broken power line, so to speak, that he's fixed, and now the current of his love is starting to flow through us again. The new creation is definitely not fully here, and we are painfully aware of that. But John says the darkness is progressively passing away, and that the true light is shining already. Meaning it's shining right now in the midst of the old age. It's not here in its fullness, but it has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and is being experienced in part in the church as we love one another with Christ's own love. So, how do we bring all that together? (laughs) There's a lot. You could say it like this. This command is new, and new today, just like it was then, It's new in that it's based on a new model of love. The ultimate model. The Lord Jesus himself and his sacrificial love. It's born out of a new experience of love. We might call it a new birth. Meaning that we've tasted of this love experientially. And this is the well from which we draw to then extend that love toward other people. There's a new experience, a new ability meaning there's a new power for love. The Holy Spirit, who writes the law on our hearts, that fundamental disposition change we were talking about at the beginning, 
That's what He does. There's new power now. A new enablement to obey. doesn't mean it's perfect. And it flows out of this new covenant of love that's ratified by Christ's blood in our place. And it's all headed toward the new creation of love. A creation that's filled with love and not hate. It's new in that sense. And if all this is true, and it definitely is true, it means then, number four, the command to love will be carried out imperfectly by every believer. Every genuine believer. Every person born of God, the command to love will be carried out, be imperfect, stops and starts, difficulties, hiccups. But God will see to it that love will be carried out by every believer. And that's exactly where he goes at the end of this passage. He says in verse 9, Whoever then says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So as you can tell in the reading, John contrasts these two different ways of treating God's people. But the brother, right? It's a shorthand for the Christian. There's two different ways of treating God's people. There's hate and there's love. This is yet another example of John's lack of nuance. Right? It's like there's two options. You either hate them or you love them. He's using these stark contrasts, but when we read what he's saying contextually, he's talking about patterns. He's talking about a lifestyle of hate and love. And what those lifestyles reveal about the person that's living those lifestyles. One or the other. And he gives us really two options. He tells us first what a life of hate reveals. He does that in verse 9, and then he comes back around in verse 11. He kind of bookends this, these verses with what a life of hate reveals, and what a life of love reveals is right in the middle, which gets the prominence. So what does a life of hate reveal? Well, John says if they hate, it does not matter what someone claims. So notice what he says in verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What you say does not matter. Because how you live reveals what you actually believe. The reality is that they are still in darkness if they hate. But what does John mean by hate? Well, in this case, it's the opposite of love. If we're not loving others in the pattern of Christ, John shockingly says we are hating them. Now, I doubt the false teachers were running around actively hating on people, like just kind of proclaiming that. That would have been easy, easy to spot. In fact, they even probably claimed to love people. But they were greedy. They didn't share with the people in need. They were slandering John and the other apostles. They loved the world. They loved the influence of the world. And they loved to influence others toward the world. By their own example, they were 
easily offended. They minimized sin. They didn't extend forgiveness. So how does John interpret all that? He says they hate. They are full, he's going to go on to say, of satanic hatred. It's black and white. He interprets it as hate, as the antithesis of love. And the reality of a life like this is that it evidences that they are still in the dark. We've talked about this many times, but there is no category for the Apostle John of a carnal Christian, meaning someone who professed faith in Christ and then lives a life full of sin without any reference to Christ for the rest of their lives and then expects to go to heaven. There is no category for that, for John or any of the other, or any of the other New Testament authors. They live their lives blindly, John says, and without direction, constantly stumbling and causing others to stumble. It's a truly pitiful state that John describes here in verse 11 of these blind folks. Listen to how one pastor put it. He says, These people with this unloving nature are always finding problems and troubles. They always see insults where they do not exist. There's always something upsetting them. They are always being put out. They are constantly stumbling because of their unloving spirit. They are always so touchy and sensitive, and they constantly run other people into trouble. And this kind of person does not realize that God will ask him about his attitude towards his brother. He is blind to his eternal destiny. That's a vivid portrait of what John describes here as as walking in darkness, meaning you live your life in the dark. You don't know where you're going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. But then beautifully and boldly, John contrasts the one who hates with the one who loves. And he shows us what a life of love reveals in, in verse 10. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John says if our lives demonstrate a pattern of self-sacrificing love, and specifically here, love for the church, born out of our own experience, out of the love of God, if that's the case, then we can be assured that we belong to the light. That's what he says. He, He says that we can be assured that we are abiding or living in the light. That's what he means means we have a real relationship. We have real fellowship with God. It shows our lives are being illumined by the God of light, and we're not running from His light, but we're running towards it. And John also says, if we love, that we can know that there's no cause for stumbling in us. It's kind of an odd phrase. What does he mean by that? In other words, our love for other people reveals that we're not going to ultimately lead others astray. We're not ultimately going to cause them to fall away from Christ. Instead, our love, and our love for them in particular, shows that the Lord plans to use us as His instruments, and is using us as His instruments, to put it positively, instruments of grace and redemption in the lives of other people. There's no cause for stumbling in the person who is actively loving others for Christ's sake, with Christ's love, out of the love that he's been shown, or she's been shown. So, kind of pull it all together. As you step back and consider your life, just thinking about it, 
Again, not dialing down in the minutia, but as you step back, what is the pattern? Have you experienced the love of God? A love that has humbled you. A love that has tenderized you. A love that has changed you in a a fundamental way. I know and John knows that you are far from perfect. I am too. In fact, you may be so much more aware now of your failures to love than you ever were before. And that's because the Lord has sensitized you to your sin. Before you were dead, now you've been made alive and now you're sensitive. I know that's definitely how it it worked and continues to work for me. But in spite of that, you know, you know that you're not what you used to be. Like a realization has occurred for you. Your eyes have been opened to the glory of God in the gospel. And that has changed you. You can't can't go back. Something has, has been altered for you. And now you could take or leave church in the past, but now you can't. You long to be with believers now. When before you would have rather run with unbelievers. Or it didn't really matter. Just kind of like whoever's having a good time, that's who I want to be with. You long to be with these believers now, but before you had, a, you had a cavalier attitude when you sinned or when you hurt other people. It didn't really, maybe it pricked you a bit, but at, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, and you kind of justified your own stuff, like, well, they deserve to get what they got, and, you know, they didn't don't even see how they hurt me, and yada, yada, yada. You had this cavalier attitude when you hurt other people, but now, if, when you do sin against other believers, you're crushed, you own it, and you seek reconciliation with them. Those are great signs. Those are signs of life. Signs that you have been tenderized by the love of God and are being tenderized by that same love. And just remember here what we've said in every of these lessons. The, there's an incredible motivation that our experience of fellowship with God will deepen as believers as we learn to love like Christ. And we learn to mimic Him in a, more faithfully. Our experience of our fellowship with God will deepen, will grow. As we learn to come to God in humility, as we learn to receive His love afresh every day, as we learn to live out of the relationship where we relish being His loved children, guess what happens? You're tenderized. There is greater love for others. There is greater fellowship with God. Now this is a, a bit of a, a, a tag-on at this point, but I, I want to direct your attention. We're about to wrap up here. We do this from time to time. A great expression of love is when we've got lots of, of saints that are not able to come to our, our church, right? We call them shut-ins, probably a bad name, but it, descriptive, gets the point across. And what we like to do from time to time is we like to write them notes of encouragement from our assembly to them, and we mail them to them. So we have all that laid out back there, and we're going to do that again tonight. So again, this is not a way to earn your way to God, to, to get, get Him to love you. It's not the way it works. But this, if your heart's just bursting of like, I want to love others, this is a great expression of that. You're just going to take some time, write a word of encouragement to one of our, our members that can't come to, the, come to the assembly because they're physically laid up or, or whatever it may be. And uh, that's just going to be a great expression of that, of that love. But if you've listened to this and you've thought, man, my life is characterized by just... Not what he was talking about, 
right? Not what John is saying. A lack of love, or maybe it's a pseudo-love. A love that appears to seek the good of other people, but you know your motives. You want people to like you. You want people to esteem you. You want people to think you're so mature, right? And if you're honest, it's not out of a desire to please your Savior. And it never is. It's never on your radar. You're insecure in your relationship with Him. You doubt. Your love is actually a self-seeking kind of love. A love that expects things in return. A love that thinks it has rights. A love that makes demands. And if that's you tonight, own it. Don't blame shift. Own that. Come to the Savior and experience His mercy. The Lord loves to redeem hypocrites. I'm one of them. Come to Him. Experience the free love of Christ. Own your hypocrisy. He will not cast you out. And if you do, you will experience life in that moment transferred death to life. Transferred from being an object of wrath to being beloved eternally by the Father. You'll experience life, true life, from Him. And that life, that love, will enable you to truly love others for the first time. Let's pray. Father, each time I leave my office and walk over here, um, before I teach, you are so good to remind me that if you don't work, all of this labor is in vain. And I just humbly lay the sermon at your feet and ask that your spirit would work through the clarity of your word in our lives so that we would resemble Jesus now. We ask it in his name. Amen.